0: Thank you for that delightful announcement, John. This is indeed Frank Key with Hooting Yard on the Air. Um, No Dobson or Blodgett and possibly no Jesuits at all this week. Um, And if I sound a little breathless, it's because, well, Hooting Yard on the Air, as you know, is a live experience. And I've just sprinted here to get here on time. Um, Actually, sprint is probably exaggerating, but moved slightly faster than I normally do. Um, This week and next week, Hooting Yard on the Air is a a special edition uh, in which I'm going to be reading a very old story, so old, such an old story that as far as I can recall, Margaret Thatcher was still the Prime Minister when this was written, so that takes you back a bit. Younger listeners may not remember who I'm talking about, and lucky for you. Um, this is called, cool. the, the reason it's going it, to, it, it's too long to, to be read in one one show, I think. I'll see how far along we get today. Um, anyway, this is House of Terps. Chapter one. If you drew a straight line between Hooting Yard and Bodger's Spinney, and your pen wobbled slightly around the halfway mark, you might, with a bit of luck, hit the spot on the map where, a century ago, Slobber Dan Kirpin planted a wooden flagpole in the sod and tied to it a rudimentary cotton windsock. In itself, this was an unremarkable act. It was, after all, a century for windsocks, hailstone detectors, thunderbolt spindles, crampons tarry and lit, and wield enormities. What once had been a barren tract, overgrown with knots of firs, bracken and scrog, was now the stamping ground of a collection of fanatical experimenters, each with a vision of incandescent truth. Why this mob of boffins had chosen so unpromising a site for the blooming of their delusions is far from clear, although the proximity of Hoon's Purple Hills with their legendary aura may well be pertinent. Whatever the reason might be, each of these palatially trousered half-wits had arrived independently at this place of downpour and desuetude, scouring the landscape for the opportunities to test their madcap theories. On a stroll across the land, the innocent observer would be beset by visions both arcane and incomprehensible. A mound of boulders dyed brilliant mauve surrounded by wisps of gossamer nailed to charred twigs and branches. The whole topped by a shallow basin into which would be dripped minute quantities of medicinal liquids and gooey ointments. Passing a half-mile further on, our traveller would find, rising ferociously from the ground as if the very mud had spawned it, an impossibly intricate contraption of levers, winches, spigots, pulleys and other gubbins, designed to uproot the tiniest specks of foliage and send them hurtling through the air into a massive pit, the walls of which were lined with battered gold plate, on which had been engraved selected verses from Leviticus. Another half-mile, and our baffled rambler would be forced to negotiate a series of shallow trenches, dug according to a scheme of mad complexity, each one having implanted in it a lozenge of gauze smeared with a foul, unduant paste, capable of conducting electricity the whole system of trenches and lozenges transforming the area into a gigantic electric battery, powering an engine hidden inside a ramshackle hut at the battery's core. The purpose of the engine would presumably become apparent when its inventor deigned to unleash its demonic power. Surrounded by these fearsome contraptions, Kirpin's cotton windsock, raised proudly aloft, appeared as little more than a sign of its creator's poverty of imagination. Yet truth sat, hunched and fretting, just over the horizon. Can we doubt that Kirpin was well aware of the ramifications of his simple deed? Yes, we can. We must. (laughs) House of Terps, Chapter 2 His wen was hidden by a poultice of his own recipe. For years he had been preoccupied with the task of creating a universal poultice, applicable to all wens, boils, sores, cysts, fernuncles, and blebs. The standard mustard plaster was to him a wretched thing, and he was determined to improve upon it. In his late teens, while apprenticed to a rust-scraping factory, he became obsessed with a future vision of apothecary shelves groaning under the weight of jar upon jar of his magnificent invention, Kirpin's improved curative bandage paste. During the long-tormented hours he spent in the factory cellar scraping at patches of rust with a variety of huge utensils, These dreams came crowding into his head until there was room for little else. In his leisure hours, he brewed up numberless potfuls of disgusting concoctions. The early recipes were undistinguished, although the germ of Kirpin's later genius was present. He sought out rare and unlikely ingredients, refining, refining, until there was hardly any matter, vegetable or mineral, to be found in the village of Ack, a sample of which had not been boiled to a paste in Kirpin's huge iron pot. Yet he was dissatisfied. Two decades had passed since first this mania had beset him, but all he had to show for it was a mountain of pails filled with the discarded results of over 10,000 experiments. Despite warnings of ruin and doom from his family, Kirpin left the employ of the rust-scraping factory and, with his meagre savings, enrolled for a chemistry course at the University of Ick. In retrospect, we must be thankful that he ignored the frenzied bewailings of his kinfolk, for it was at Ick that the Kirpin of history was born. He proved to be the most brilliant student the university had ever taught. Day and night he toiled at his studies. Um, there's a gap in the text at this point. There's several pages of, or not a gap in the text, but a gap in my reading. There's several pages of scientific gibberish and mumbo-jumbo um providing a sort of comprehensive outline of his studies. Um, Listeners who really want the details can just consult any standard chemistry textbook of the period. And was awarded his final degree at the age of 53. As was the custom at Ick, he squatted on his haunches atop a podium hewn from basalt. Flags and pennants were dangled about his head, and from time to time, after a verbal prod from the praelector, Kirpin would snatch up one of the pennants in his teeth and gnash at it with gumption. The roll of honour was then read, and one by one the graduates drew themselves upright, leapt down from their podia and prostrated themselves before the vice-praelector in abundance, who lashed the certificates of conferment to their bodices with frayed ribbons. Slobodan Kirpin, the man who had entered ick, dismal and jaundiced, was now a doctor of chemistry. He had had half his teeth extracted two years before. At first, the doctorate seemed to be a curse. So indefatigable was Kirpin in his search for an omnipotent poultice that the years of study, the widened intellectual horizons, had done nothing to divert him from his chosen course. On the contrary, his mania had intensified. But where before he would have been content to muck about with orris root and bee now he sought to synthesise ever more preposterous substances, weird, rare things not easily found in his usual haunts. Seeking finance from anyone who would listen... Kirpin set out on a mad odyssey. In his rucksack, he carried retorts, bunsen burners, test tubes, rebs, alembics and hellebore cramps. He strode across opulent landscapes, hardly aware where he was going. Every so often, some thrilling blob would cause him to halt, unpack his rucksack and carry out a variety of ludicrous experiments. It was a harsh existence, and racked as he was by hunger and exhaustion, Kirpin became a physical wreck. He found solace, however, in the fact that his piteous frame erupted in enough sores, wends and blebs to make him his own best guinea pig. All the while, he filled countless notebooks with the details of his experiments, ticking off different substances as he wrenched the curative properties from them. Devil starch, quat jelly, Tasmanian goo, spent bales, frad. And then he was beckoned by the Arctic. House of Terps, Chapter 3. In his diary, Kirpin gave the following account of his first weeks in the Arctic. At Stavanger, I came upon a man who sold me a curious garment which he claimed would protect me from the icy cold. It appeared to be made out of wood, although I cannot be certain. There was a springiness about it which is alien to most, if not all, of the wood I have come across in my time. It also appeared to be rather thin for a piece of protective clothing. I handed my rucksack to this rum fellow, who seemed to spit whenever he spoke. Not only spit, mind you, but let fly a gobbit directly at my tremendous hairstyle. I digress. Handing my rucksack to him, as I say, I clambered into this wooden overall. He demonstrated to me how to wedge my knees in the cramped, jointed sections of the legs, and similarly how to adjust the purchase in the arms by twiddling a small metal flange located at either elbow. The hood came separately from the rest of the outfit and was fixed in place by a devilishly complicated mechanism which locked and jammed as soon as I had donned it. I have yet to discover how to dislodge it. Lurching to one side to espy my Norwegian friend through the narrow slit provided for vision, I took my rucksack back from him and rummaged through one of the pockets for money. I was dismayed to note that I had only just enough cash left to buy this suit and to pay a jolly jack-tar to provide my passage northward. However, there was no time to waste. Pressing some grubby coins into the man's hand, I bade him farewell and, wheeling myself about turn, causing my skeleton no little agony, I set off for the docks. Before I had gone ten paces, I realised that it would be easier to carry my rucksack if I merely nailed it to my suit, chest level on my left side. Once again, I wheeled about and headed for the smithy shed I had noticed earlier. I would surely find out hammer and nails there. To my surprise, the man who looked up at me from his anvil was an old colleague of mine from Ick, we had studied latent phosphorescence together and burned daubs of clay. He did not recognise me, encased as I was in wood. I blurted out a greeting, to which he did not react. I had not realised that my suit was heavily soundproofed, and that if I wished to make myself heard, I had to screech at the top of my voice. An old man's lungs are not designed for such exertion, and I have had much need of soothing linctus in the weeks since I donned this apparel. But as I say, I did not realise immediately that my wooden cocoon was loath to emit sound, and I'm afraid that I interpreted my erstwhile colleague's bewilderment as evidence of cretinization. Impatient to be away, I helped myself to a hammer and some nails and rammed the rucksack home, rather too energetically as it happened, since I managed to inflict a lesion in the flesh of my left upper torso, which still gives me some jip as I write. When I have worked out how to extricate myself from this warming wooden affair, I must apply some experimental poultices. Ten hours later, I arrived at the docks and met Enrico. Over the last few months, I have come to know him as well as I have ever known any of my fellow creatures. In another age, perhaps, they would have made a saint of him. He seems to be imbued with the sort of innocent goodness one associates with congenital idiots, and yet he has a first-class intellect. He has a steady command of sixteen languages, eleven of which I find utterly incomprehensible.' Some of them seem to consist mostly of coughs, groans and a kind of strangulated choking which, though unattractive, is enough to wake the dead and has saved my bacon on more than one occasion, ringing out ghastly warnings at the approach of nameless terrors in the darkness which otherwise would have fallen upon me and torn out my throat or some such macabre business, or so Enrico tells me, at any rate... Splendid fellow! In this icy nothing world, he has become my ears and eyes, my voice, my guide and helping hand. Were it not for him, I do not know how I would cope in this godforsaken place. In the evenings, we sit hunched over the campfires which Enrico sets with such elegance from the most surprising materials. Never in all my years have I met another man able to transform a handful of slush into a raging inferno in under a minute. So naturally does this ability come to him that he greets my astonished inquiries with a sort of superior disdain. We have had many interesting chats sat around the fire, Enrico belching and drooling in four or five languages simultaneously. I have learned to await the most pertinent points in his discourse to interject with a barrage of ferocious shouting. If I spoke any lower, my friend would not hear a word I said from inside my wooden world, and although my throat is red raw from the effort, I do not wish to deprive Enrico of the benefits of convivial discussion and debate. We have ranged over all sorts of subjects, and though I fear at times that Enrico is something of a cynic, he has a plentiful store of anecdotes which are both entertaining and instructive. I realise now how little I knew of life in a Norwegian dockyard. House of Terps, Chapter 4. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, I certainly am, reading something that was uh, written so long ago. Where was I? I told you it was live. Um, Okay, yes. House of Terps, Chapter 4. It was not until he reached that barren stretch of ice known as Van Glob's Land that Kirpin realised he was alone. All along, Enrico had been a figment spawned by his feverish brain. It is a testament to his implacability that once this truth had dawned on him, he was undaunted and trudged ever northward with renewed energy. A knot hole in the right leg of his garb caused a small patch of frostbite to waylay his ankle, but this only increased his sense of urgency. He had developed an intricate method of applying test poultices to his wood-encased body by feeding them in through the mouth slit and then shimmying and wiggling in a precisely coordinated manner until the poultice reached the required area. Thus, sandwiched between his skin and the wood, the poultice could be gently tamped into place in order to pack snugly against his flesh. Extricating the test pieces was another matter and the dreadful difficulty of doing so led Kirpin to invent an evaporating poultice by harnessing the, illegible, properties of some vermilion crystals he had discovered wedged in a crevasse. One day, while bent over his crucible mucking about with shards of todge, Kirpin was astonished to hear footsteps behind him. Spinning around as fast as his wooden suit would allow, he was confronted by an enormous creature, almost twice his height, burbling incomprehensible noises which sounded at once like the tinkling of glass and the hooting of a foghorn. It had appeared as if from nowhere. His brain pulsating, Kirpin wondered momentarily if this preposterous being was another product of his febrile imagining, another Enrico. And yet, as it continued to burble, tinkling, hooting, the truth of its corporela- corporeality became evident. Adjusting his elbow flange, Kirpin held out his hand in greeting. The beast was silent for a moment, then twirled wisps of cold blue fragrance around Kirpin's body. Beckoning him to follow, it turned on what could only be, roughly be called its heel and waddled away. Hastily shoving his crucible and todd shards into the rucksack, Kirpin set off in pursuit. The creature stayed well ahead of him, but once he had hit his stride, Kirpin was able to make a rudimentary study of its main features. It was a sort of cross between a penguin, an ape and a trout, huge, matted with rough fur, its head and neck covered in silvery scales and strange black ringlets. One arm tapered to a fin or flap, while the other was thick and hairy and ended in an almost humanoid hand. As it waddled onward, its massive bushy tail thumped along the ground behind it, sending up flurries of thin snow, which, settling, covered its tracks. It was the most asymmetrical beast Kirpin had ever seen, and yet he was aware of a tremendous feeling of kinship with it, After all, it was the first life-form he had come upon in 18 lonely months in the Arctic, and its presence overwhelmed him. He scurried after it with almost slavish eagerness. Two weeks later, having trekked across the featureless expanse, the beast, with its human acolyte in tow, arrived at a gaping pit. Turning to face Kirpin, the ludicrous creature tinkled and hooted, then suddenly hurled itself over the edge into the icy moor. The great chemist had no idea how to react. Peering over the rim, he could see nothing at all, nor did any sounds issue forth from below. The compass nailed to his wrist was broken, so he was unable to ascertain whether or not he had reached the pole. Once again alone in the vastness, Kirpin hummed his favourite hymn, Then, with a certainty born only of dementia, he threw himself after the beast into the pit. As he plummeted, his very being was invaded by bip and fromage, and then he lost consciousness. House of Terps, Chapter 5 Introductory Note. Chapter 5 is extracted from A Bucket of Wisdom by Maud Firebrand. The text which will follow is self explanatory, but it's worth taking the opportunity here to retail a brief anecdote concerning Dr. Firebrand which is unpublished elsewhere. It's said that during her first year as a lecturer at the University of Van Glub's land, Dr. Firebrand was piloting her biplane over the icy wastes when she was forced to crash land in pretty sticky circumstances. Marooned in this frozen hell, her chances of survival were slight. For provisions, she had only a packet of boiled sweets and a flask of sour cocoa. Resourceful as ever, the plucky ethnologist injected her faithful husky, Desmond, with a dose of helium, not so much that it exploded, but enough for it to float balloon-like over the ice until it came into land on the ramshackle tin roof of the university volleyball court. From there, Desmond scampered Hotfoot to the medical centre, where he interrupted a three-way wrestling match between Dr. Bilge, Dr. Grudge and Dr. Strabismus. The contest had been occasioned by the use of some choice language of the gutter by Dr. Bilge during an astounding and dangerous operation to remove the inflamed upper frack from an elderly doyen of the Van Glubsland pole vaulting club. The patient bore an uncanny resemblance to the film actor Bill Purge, he of the brilliantined locks and puckish airs. Dr. Bilge remonstrated with the patient, screeching and blaspheming, and was bundled out of the operating theatre by his colleagues, who, leaving the inflamed upper frack throbbing venomously on a side trolley, proceeded to bash Dr. Belge about the head with a variety of surgical equipment. So it was that a fortnight later, Dr. Bilge sought satisfaction by challenging his tormentors to a three-way wrestling match, announcing that he would fight the pair of them simultaneously. He was on the brink of a veritable pounding when Dr. Firebrand's trusty pooch, Desmond, howling like a demon, entered the fray and brought the fight to an immediate halt. Dealing bilge a few hefty blows to the head, grudge and strabismus hurried over to the feisty hound and expelling the last remnants of helium from its body, scanned the message, scrawled on a yoghurt carton tied around its neck. Shoving a dish of bone meal under the dog's snout, the two doctors scrambled their aeroplane and flew off to rescue Dr Firebrand, making use of the map reference points given in the scrawled message. They found her half-buried in the snow, sucking one of her boiled sweets and monstrously unperturbed. Later, swooping in over the campus, their mercy dash completed, the airborne doctors were amazed to see Dr Bilge standing on the roof of the University Turnip Warehouse armed to the teeth with a blunderbuss and a sack of hay. Whatever demented scheme he had in mind was swiftly annulled, however. All of a sudden an enormous anvil plummeted from the heavens, crashing straight onto his skull and propelling him through the roof and through the topmost layer of a mountain of turnips. And so he expired, mashed in among the vegetable he had adored since boyhood. But let us not dwell on his atrocious fate. All that calls itself human was hateful to him we must proceed with the promised extract from Dr. Firebrand's seminal potpourri, A Bucket of Wisdom. And, um, as I said, that's the introductory note to Chapter 5 of House of Terps. Chapter 5, followed by 6, 7 and 8, will follow um, in Hooting Yard on the Air next week. That's the end of the show for this week. Uh, One brief note, I think I should point out that... um, just in that last uh, piece, there was a sentence, a phrase where I, I talked about the message scrawled on a yoghurt carton tied around its neck. I'd like to apologise for that. Um, we all know, of course, that the correct pronunciation of the word is your not yoghurt. It's your hort. Um, do remember that next time you're in your grocery. That's the end of the show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Um, tune in again next week. Um... Bye-bye.